there's as many good as there are bad, but, you know, real quick, two things rise to the top, you know, cream and scum. And, you know, um, you know, we're definitely with the creams. Welcome back to another episode of CCW Insider, where we talk about the matches and stories from wrestling's last territory. My name is Ryan Joy, and I run MinutesToBellTime.com, a website and database tracking pro wrestling from around the world. On today's episode, you're going to hear from CCW senior referee Bruce Owens. Bruce has been in wrestling for almost 50 years. He started in the 1970s, and he's going to talk to us about what wrestling was actually like way back in the proper territory days in the 1970s. He's also going to talk to us about how he got into the business and how he eventually transitioned to be a referee. All those stories are incredible. (laughs) I talked to Bruce for over an hour, but I'm not going to do all of that whole episode today. We're going to break it up into chunks. It would just be too much. We'll just do the first 20 minutes tells those two stories of how Bruce got into the business and what it was like in the 1970s. So that interview is coming up right now. I'm talking with CCW senior referee, Bruce Owens. Bruce, welcome to the show. You've got a long history in wrestling and I can't wait to get in and start talking about, uh, you know, what is almost 50 years in the business. So welcome to the show. Well, Ryan, first of all, thank you for everything that you do for the business and support the different, uh, athletes because it's important a lot of the people you know that have gone from ccw have ended up in bigger companies or made it across the pond to japan and other places and other continents so um, your work is very important not only to the promotion but to the individual athletes oh thank you so much for saying that i I really do appreciate that Um, but let's get into let's get into you bruce so Mm -hmm. i think about you know i know you started in 1973 the business would have been so different back then. I guess, could you describe your perspective on the wrestling business in 1973? What was it? What was it like? Okay. Well, f- first of all, like anything for me back then is in black and white, you know. <laughs> sure. Uh, and it's a uh, hard paper, you know. And maybe you can find the negatives, you know. But um, totally different business, you know. Um, I started for uh, Eddie Graham's NWA Championship Wrestling from Florida, which you know later segments of it were run by Steve Kern with the development for WWE and, and everything. But, you know, Tampa's always been a hotbed of wrestling, but, you know, I was in Miami and back then, you know, I, I was breaking in doing just go for work and everything. Eddie Graham, you know, had his airplane and stuff and I was involved in aviation. And sometimes I'd pick up the guys at the airport, put up rings, different things, but it was a kayfabe business. I mean, um, despite spending several years doing different things and seeing the guys and maybe sometimes seeing them in a very close proximity, the business was very kayfabe. And, and uh, the difference was when we go way back then, we made our living with it. Okay. There was only so many people in the business. And that's why once I got in the business, if I wanted to go to Texas for a week and work or go anywhere else, you could do that and vice versa. Scrappy McGowan would come down, Tommy Young and, different people come down to Florida and go back and forth 
Um, we trade referees back and forth and people just go out, you know, have a good time and work somewhere else. And so um, it was a lot different like that to, from the competitive standpoint of trying to get a spot on the card. Um, you were pretty well locked in. Uh, the biggest fear was a new booker would come in and sometimes the booker would, you know, bring his crew in and our talent would be great, you know, slowly phased down. Some would stay, but maybe, you know, 60% would be replaced with different talent over the next, you know, um, six uh, weeks, eight weeks. Um, but I'll give you an example. Miami Beach Convention Center ran on Wednesdays. And first it was the Miami Beach Auditorium, the Jackie Gleason building. And then uh, when the, for the big shows, we used the Miami Beach Convention Center and later the Miami Beach Convention Center became the main stable. But at the auditorium, which held about 4,000 people, the way you could know it was a sellout and, you know, we'd be coming from the airport or driving from Tampa or something is, um, which Tampa was the base, was um, three blocks away from the building. You'd see people dressed and standing on corners and um, they were guys scalping tickets. Got it. And it was, um, I'll give you an example. They ran, I can't remember the year, probably around 76 or something. When, whenever Dusty did the turn on Pac Song, Pac Song, Dusty, and a couple different variants with a tag or a manager thrown in the match or something like that. Um, they ran 26 weeks straight at the Miami beach convention center with sellouts and scalping tickets. And 4,000 seat building you're saying, well, this was, we were also in the convention center. So sometimes it was up to five or a little bit above maybe 52, but, um, we didn't have all the sports we were competing with in the town. There wasn't the Miami heat, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and some of the other franchises in the state. Um, and you go back then there was a couple channels on TV, cable TV didn't happen. So, you know, wrestling was big. And, um, you know, like I said, uh, what, what happened back in the seventies of holding an arm for, you know, 10 minutes and, working the arm, all that stuff wouldn't work today. I mean, sure. you know, athletes have progressed, they're bigger, you know, there's a time when a size 12 shoe was a special order. Now it's, it's, you know, it's common shoe and everything. Athletes have gotten bigger, faster. You could never get away with what we did, but the ground basis of what we did was the psychology of the match. Mm -hmm. And that has really never changed. Um, today you can see sometimes the matches I'd say, 70% um, athletics and only 30% of a story because the holds that they're doing are so fast. And, you know, I'll say flippity flops, not in an insulting way, but you know, you know what I'm saying when I'm saying flippity flops, that that is the story and not the psychology because it's just two guys going out there trying to outshine each other on moves um, versus having a slower match and they're telling the story. Um, and there's room for both of those style matches on any card, but that'll be the difference you'll see sometimes in CCW that, you know, the matches are telling stories. There's, there's everything you'll see at some of the bigger promotions, but you'll also see the story told probably in eight out of 10 matches on the card, you know, um, and that's the ratio, not necessarily 10 matches a night. Um, but that's, that's what's key because, you know, People can watch athleticism and it's one thing you register everything you see, but the story also involves the mind. Mm -hmm. And that's what captivates people is the story, the feud. 
Um, a bunch of moves will never make somebody stand up and start yelling. The psychology will. Right. Well, it, it must have been, it must have been incredible because I, I I need to step back and just kind of you know you talked about a lot of things that wouldn't work today, like when you turn terms of like you know a hold for a long period of time. But you just you said and and I kind of I stopped you for a second, but twenty six weeks in a row selling out a big building, four thousand five thousand people in the same market, it, it it's not something that WWE or AEW or any of these big national companies could do today. So. Yeah. I think, you know, you made the point wrestling was big. It had to have been enormous at that time in order to, to have the following, like what you're talking about. That's, it's incredible to think about. Well, you know, and, and like I said, is, is what we did in the ring wouldn't survive today. Um, mm -hmm. It would to some of it does to a, a faster speed and not holding the holds and everything as long. But the difference was back then was, the psychology and the story. And it wasn't about people yelling and screaming on the mic. They told that story and they reeled you in and you started to feel it and you started to believe. Um, Dusty, uh, one of the great promo guys of um, people who say, God, where'd Dusty come out stuff? Dusty'd look at what was in the paper today. And, you know, I won't go too much into Dusty, but I'm giving you back in the times of how did, how'd you bring 26 weeks the feud, the story, you know, Dusty was one of the first guys to start blading on the arm, you know, and that was Pac Song with the claw was his, was his big hold. He was a Korean that was about six foot six. He had hands the size of a catcher, admit, and he put the claw and, you know, the people there, they never, ever saw that this guy had this claw and he could make people bleed, but now he's got Dusty's arm and Dusty's arms bleeding. Then they're on TV and, you know, you see all the marks and everything and, and, you know, it went around the state and then it got to be, you know, how did we get those crowds in those days? Well, what happened is when things got real hot with an angle, people were coming from West Palm beach to Miami, Fort Lauderdale to Miami and Fort Lauderdale was drawing people from Miami to Fort Lauderdale to Palm beach. And then when we ran the Northern part, Tampa, St. Pete, Orlando, Lakeland. Sometimes you've had people at all those cities mm -hmm. on a regular basis because the angle was so hot. So one of the things that was hard was really mixing the card up a little in the finishes because we had too many people starting to travel, sure. um, meaning fans from town to town. And, you know, I mean, Eddie Graham was a real stickler on that, that you got to believe, you know, and yeah. don't ever let these people not believe. But um, those were some of the things that drew the people. Um, also, I think the fact that boxing at the time was out there, but um, boxing wasn't that good at that time, you know, and, and the fights were here and there and, and big fights, but it wasn't like boxing ran, ran and was good. I'll give you an example. The same building we did, they ran boxing the night before, and boxing would be drawing, you know, 1,300, 1800 it just it, it didn't it just didn't do it because even if you brought somebody in it wasn't the talent like i i truly believe not because i was in the business was that we for you went out there and paid 10 20 whatever it was what you got from us was 5x what what they got from boxing without a doubt or better mm -hmm. 
you you talked about it i think just just briefly when you first start started addressing the question but uh, in terms of how you kind of broke in because you talked about how it was a little bit different getting into the business back then and i think it sounded like you had a connection or something with the airplane is that how you kind of got in my mine is a real crazy journey and uh, jj dillon who i saw after 30 years and we had dinner is we kind of had similar paths of part-time and um a little bit of talent a little bit of luck a little bit the right place the right time i'll give you a quick example bill alfonso works for us as a manager bill came in and was trying to be a referee his uh, half brother was david sierra the assassin, the uh, uh, Cuban assassin, the saint. And um, what happened is whatever it was the night before, I was an announcer then, but um, the guys broke down, didn't have a spare, both referees, and they fired him. Billy had just dropped off his, uh, you know, resume like, uh, you know, a day or two before. And they were so pissed that how could the referees be driving the boys? They had flat tires. Nobody made the show and boom, you know, Bill Alfonso made it in. He was epic in Florida. But how I broke in is, is a, it's a crazy story and I'll run you through it quick. So first of all, I was in aviation and the maintenance and everything. So I knew different things and Eddie Graham had his own airplane and sometimes I'd bump into him and, and at the airport and I did different jobs in the airlines. And everything. I worked ticket counter and I would upgrade the guys and everything. So they knew me. And, you know, they didn't smart me up or anything, but they knew me and everything. Eddie had parts for his private airplane. I said, no, I know where they go. Just this. I'd pick Eddie up and go. And Eddie was smart enough to know that I had a good career in aviation and that I'm not trying to be a mark. And he knew I was doing okay in life and stuff. And um, sometimes during Eddie's life, he was on and off the wagon, you know. And uh, trust me, in my life, and I put it out there is, I've been sober 25 years and I've sure. done everything that you've ever heard about in wrestling. Um, <laughs> I've done it. Okay. So um, I put it out there that, you know, I've been to hell and back and, and I'm okay. But um, I also would take care of Eddie when he got in trouble. And sometimes Eddie didn't make it to the building and I'd have to call and say, you know, Mike, I'm sorry what happened, but um, I'm with your dad. He's not going to make it. And so there was some trust with me and Eddie that, you know, I didn't let anything out. And so fast forward, um, I know the guys and everything, but when I initially started, I would take, um, man, I had like an Instamatic or something. I didn't have, you know, this is film. Okay. So I would go ahead and um, I take pictures and I grew up in Hialeah. I had a dark room in my parents' uh, uh, laundry room. And all you need is to drop the paper into a developer. Next thing, a stopper that stops the developing and then go ahead and put it in a rinse, hang them on paper clips and boom. So I'm making eight by tens for 13 cents. I'm selling them to the boys for 50 cents. They're selling them for a dollar. Well, some of the guys back then are making $20 a night and we're way back there. Okay. Some of the guys now are making a hundred dollars a night with my pictures. So I become real popular. Yes, valuable. Some of the guys now aren't going to Jacksonville and some of the long towns and they're, they're, they're missing out towns and stuff. So Eddie says to me, look, um, this is before anybody was ever selling pictures and merch and everything. So Eddie says, you give me the, you know, you give me the pictures, I'll get them sold. Because remember, I'm helping Eddie and the other issue with Eddie. 
So, and then Eddie would give me the money when the guys made their town. I mean, he'd give me the money, but then when the guys made their towns, he'd give them, give them their money. So, you know, the guys would autograph them and we'd sell them. Well, sometimes I'd go to the buildings early and of course my pictures weren't signed. And so I'd go out there before, you know, um, out, cause fans used to be there a couple hours in advance, like eight o'clock show, man, people were there at five o'clock, you know, they'd go right from work to the building. Well, I'd sell what I could to the crowd because now, you know, I'm selling them for 75 cents or 80 cents, but <laughs> I'm walking out with a couple hundred dollars. And I mean, I'm like 18 years old and I'm doing this on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Wow. Okay? Yeah. And, and so I'm making this before I even get money from the guys. And they would say, hey, somebody came up with a picture to sign. I said, oh, the quality wasn't good. So I didn't sell you that one. I give away a few to help things going, you know. So I was doing real, real good, man. I was, I made it, made a lot of money, made more money than than I would have been wrestling, and some of the wrestlers at the time. So that's how I kind of got in a little closer with Eddie. Still hadn't smartened me up or anything. So um, the business started getting really, really good in in the late seventies and um, we in real early eighties, and we started running multiple towns. Well. Um, back then, um, you know, I, I started, I was a bell ringer and that's, um, I'll get you to Miami beach. I'll make that real quick was, so the timekeeper was there. He has a heart attack and dies. Okay. Oh, no. And now remember I was just hauling the boys. Well, uh, Jimmy Tanaka, who, uh, Duke Kiyomoka's son or Pat Tanaka from the Orient Express, his, his brother, yeah. um, Jimmy did the building setup and some of the other things and kind of stuff I would help with and building set up crowd counts and things like that. Cause sometimes somebody else was skimming some money, other partners in the territory at towns and they weren't, you know, two sets of tickets, you know? And uh, so I end up now, now I'm the, the timekeeper, you know, and they did it like it was legit and everything. So they're doing CPR on this guy. He's dead. And I grew up, you know, my, my parents uh, adopted two children. And so my dad was an airplane mechanic and we had, um, seven seven people in the family so you know i got some hand-me-downs and things were kind of tight you know because my mom didn't work she took care of all the kids and um so i go by and i roll up the guy's tie they took off him you know i stick it in my pocket well the next week i i show up with the guy's tie on and the white shirt because that's what he always wore and i said hey you know frank freeman was the announcer can i be the timekeeper and next thing you know chris dundee who was his brother had Muhammad Ali says, yeah, uh, what's your real name? And, you know, I wasn't real smart that they didn't have all of these real names. And I said, okay, yeah, this, so at the end of the night, I get a check, you know? And, and so I became the timekeeper and I did that for a year or two. Frank Freeman who had been a stable in Miami for like 30 years as the announcer. He got sick and nobody from the office had ever called him. So Frank called me and says, I'm not going back. So I went to Jimmy Tanaka and said, hey, you know, Frank told me to talk to you, but he's not coming back and he'll call you in the office. I says, can I take the spot? So, boom, that's how I became the announcer at, um, in, you know, Eddie Graham's championship wrestling. And I did like Miami, Fort Lauderdale, um, you know, up the state, West Palm, Fort Pierce and some of the towns. And um, the way I became a referee was I had just got, tired of always having to iron the shirt ties <laughs> is Dutch Mantel and Michael Hayes were booking and co-booking. Um, and 
I said, hey, can I become a referee? And they said, what do you know about referee? And I said, nothing. And they said, go up to uh, Tampa, I mean, uh, Orlando on Sunday night. So I went up there and my first match was a Broadway, which is a draw. And I said, look, Michael, I'm going to mess up. I don't know. I don't feel good about this. He says, just go out there and do it. Don't worry. You've watched it. Everybody knows you. You know, the guys know you do it. So the match, the bell rings and, and I'm just so excited. I jump out of the ring. I forget to raise both guys' hands. <laughs> Fast forward, make it real quick. 30 years later, I, I see Michael Hayes and I go, Michael, I don't remember you because back then I had longer hair and, you know, obviously the way it is now. And he says, the only man to ever screw up a Broadway. But he <laughs> did that. He brought Cena, Batista, all these guys together and said, this is my friend Bruce, man. I broke him as a referee. He's putting me over and then he drops the bomb that, you know, I, I jumped out <laughs> and raised, raised the guy's hands, you know. But um, interesting enough on that was, uh, it was about four or five days later, uh, the guys broke down. The referee didn't come. I ended up working Fort Lauderdale, um, and I ended up working every match. And the main event was Wyndham and Flair for 60 minutes through. Oh, So I one match to doing the whole card wow. by fire. So that's kind of my migration into the business and how I got to where I am and you know, here it is. I'm like about 49 years later, you know. <laughs> well, that's our show for this week. And what incredible stories from CCW senior referee Bruce Owens. He is the man who messed up the Broadway. That is the story. I, 30 years later, and he still can't live that one down. So uh, part two is definitely going to come out very soon. Bruce is going to talk to us about how he drove Andre the Giant around and some more incredible stories about being a referee in the business for 50 years, pretty much. So do stay tuned for that. In the meantime, drop us a comment on who else you would like to see on the show and follow us on social media. I'm Minutes to Bell Time on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm Minutes to Bell Time on Twitter. And of course, you can follow Coastal Championship Wrestling on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, everywhere. Uh, but do watch a live wrestling every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on the CCW YouTube channel. And with that, we'll see you next week. Uh, Bruce is going to send us home. So over to you, Bruce. Hey, it's Gordon Sully with Say So Long from the Sunshine State. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day and good evening. You have been watching CCW Insider, produced by Minutes to Bell Time in association with Coastal Championship Wrestling. Hey, what's up? It is 12 Gauge Paige Van Zandt. And as you know, I just transitioned into pro wrestling and I wouldn't go anywhere else in South Florida other than CCW where I get to train with David Gangrel. 